I think one of the keys to making the Summit of the Future a success is to have a successful SDG Summit this year. Many members, especially in the G77 and partners, have pointed out that we've blasted many, many recommendations out through the High-Level Advisory Board, through the Common Agenda, and you have this incredibly important inflection moment, September 19th and 20th of this year, with the SDG Summit, that really is the focal point of many of our international commitments. And some member states have complained that the, the whole Summit of the Future stuff could distract from that. The more that we can show that the various tracks and initiatives are accelerating progress on the SDGs, and that's a key theme of the High-Level Advisory Board, the better I think the chances of success at the Summit of the Future will be. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast here at Library Archives, United Nations Geneva. Today we have in the studio Dr. Adam Day, and he's the head of the Geneva Office of the United Nations University and its Center for Policy Research here in Geneva. He will tell us more about what the office does and where it's located. And together with Adam, we're going to explore a quite powerful report put out by the High-Level Advisory Board on Effective Multilateralism. And the report title goes... Pretty long, but it goes, a breakthrough for people and planet, effective and inclusive global governance for today and the future. This is a publication by the UNU, United Nations University, just came out, 2023, and um, it sort of shows a pathway to revitalize the multilateral system. And we know from many conversations on this podcast that this is very much needed now, that we are in a transition time, and we are going towards the summit of the future in September 2024. And so we decided here at Library Archives to have a series of guests that will accompany us uh, throughout these months, 2023 and 24, towards the summit. We'll start talking about the future of multilateralism, multilateralism of the future, what's in there. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Why don't you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional trajectory, and your, you know, attachment to the ideas of multilaterals of the future. Thanks so much, Francesco. It's, it's great to be here. My name's Adam. Uh, Dr. Day is my dad. Um, and I've just started a new venture with the Center for Policy Research in UN University. Uh, we've just moved to Geneva last June. Uh, we are a think tank for the UN system. Um, we have a pretty good size office in New York, 25 people or so. And I think the best way to think about our work is we try to underpin multilateral policy with better evidence and advice. And we try to connect scholarship and science with policymaking by member states, by UN agencies, by the, by the Secretary General. And so we've developed that work into a variety of areas, including things like peace building, conflict prevention, peacekeeping, climate security, human trafficking and slavery, migration, a whole range of areas that we've identified where the UN could use an extra few brains. Um, and some of our work is empirical. We have field research. Some of our work is advisory to member states and others. Um, but in general, that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do is support the multilateral system. And the idea of having an office in Geneva was an exciting one because we realized that so much of our work relied on bridging the policy ecosystems in New York and Geneva. And so the Swiss have kindly agreed to have a kind of startup here uh, or a satellite office of the Center for Policy Research that's helping to connect the work in Geneva and, and New York and also with, with the field and with the global south. So that's the very quick history of the Center for Policy Research here in Geneva and very happy to talk about this work of the High-Level Advisory Board where both the New York and the Geneva offices were supporting this board as a secretariat. So doing the kind of the research, connecting the expertise to this board and helping to produce this report that came out last month. Well, we're very happy to have you here and have a deep dive into the report and showing to the audience here what are the main findings. There are a lot of recommendations. I kind of like this idea of having of pinpointing shifts and then going to recommendation. There are also underlying principles that I think are worth mentioning in this podcast. Before we go there, maybe a few words about UNU. Not many people may know that the UN is a university. And so just to be clear, what it is and what it does. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I've been working for UNU since 2017, and I, I wouldn't say I actually have a completely clear picture on everything it does. I, I don't think the word university is actually the, the best description of most of its work. It actually does very little teaching, although in some places... 
like Maastricht and, and others, it connects with the university. I think it's more like a global think tank for the system. And what tends to happen is a government will say, we'd like you and you to come to our country and work on a specific issue. So for example, in Finland, the, the government there has paid for you and you to set up an institute focused on development. And so then that institute will, will generate research there. Uh, it used to do more teaching, but now I'd, I'd think of it as a kind of series of 14 institutes that do a specific set of research for governments. We in the Center for Policy Research are even less dependent. We are actually an independent think tank within the UNU system. And so we aren't beholden to a, a single government or a single mandate. We kind of follow where the system might need that set of policy research. So we're a bit more flexible, a bit more independent. Um, and that's one of the reasons we were able to start in Tokyo, move to New York, open a new office in Geneva. We're really um, seen as a, we see ourselves to a certain extent as supporting the multilateral system wherever it needs its uh, our work. Well, excellent. So let's dive in then. Um, we have these quite powerful and very timely, I would say, report by this high-level advisory board on effective multilateralism. I think it's legit to begin with the high-level advisory board, what it is, what it does, how it relates to the UN and its principal organs. So the board was actually created as an initiative of the Secretary General. And, and the way that happened was in the 75-year anniversary of the UN, the, U, the UNSG's office conducted a big global survey and presented this to member states. And the membership identified a lot of problems with global governance out of this survey and it brought agreement on where the shortcomings are in the multilateral system and asked the Secretary General to propose uh, a report addressing some of those shortcomings. And about a year and a half ago, the Secretary General produced a report called Our Common Agenda, which was his diagnosis of where multilateralism is today, where the various crises are, and a lot of proposals for how member states and others could take forward solutions. One of those initiatives in the Common Agenda was the creation of a high-level advisory board. At the time, it was actually called the High-Level Advisory Board on Global Public Goods. Kind of identify these key areas where the multilateral system should be delivering better. Uh, the, the board was renamed Effective Multilateralism um, to kind of more accurately reflect its work in, in terms of global governance. And so it's an independent board of 12 uh, experts co-led by two former heads of state and government, Stefan Levan, former prime minister of, of Sweden, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, and a group of experts in different fields that is essentially was tasked to produce an independent set of proposals to address the problems in our common agenda for the SG. So they've already produced that report, which is what we'll be talking about today. Uh, they pre presented it to the Secretary General on the 18th of April, and it has then been transmitted to the member states, to the President of the General Assembly, for their consideration. They've had discussions about it now, and the idea is, is it's one of the many tracks from our common agenda that will lead to the summit of the future that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Okay, that's very clear, and thank you for, for, for being clear and concise, because sometimes the UN processes and their board are harder to explain, but that comes through very, very neatly. And so let's dive in into the report. That may be harder a mission for us in this podcast because it's quite um, hefty, but it's very interesting. So go ahead and, you know, help us learn from the report and make sense of it. Sure. I mean, there are a lot of different ways of, of describing this report. I think the easiest way, and, and there's a nice diagram actually on page 50 of our common agenda that's got a circle on it that says, here are the areas of global governance where the, the system should be delivering better. And it lists those areas. It says the global financial system, a healthy planet, digital space, peace and security, um, science, knowledge, and more. And the idea of the report is that the experts look at how the system is addressing these risks and opportunities, how it's delivering for people, identifies problems, and then makes very clear recommendations for how to improve global governance in those areas. And so the report is actually designed around six specific areas where the board said, we have a kind of cluster of proposals to improve things. The first shift is very much on how multilateralism is done and how it could be more inclusive and more effective. We can go into the details on that, but this is more of an overview. The second shift is a cluster of recommendations on improving environmental governance, and that uh, the framing for that is really the triple planetary crisis of climate change, pollution, and biodiversity loss, but it's the whole 
gamut of, of how to address the environmental risks. The third is the global financial architecture and how to adjust the global financial architecture to better address the, the crises of today. The fourth, digital space, uh, and how the multilateral system can better uh, create an inclusive and effective approach to digital space, making sure that no one is left behind. There's a very clear link between all of these shifts in the SDGs. The fifth shift is peace and security, and, and many of those issues will be more familiar to this audience, I think, things like Security Council reform and nuclear disarmament. And then there's an interesting sixth and final shift, which is about how the system can stop lagging behind emerging risks. So you imagine those of you who have seen ChatGPT appear and, and other fast-moving changes, biological risks, the pandemic, um, climate change, the, the system tends to lag behind those changes. And the idea of the sixth shift is how can you create institutions and networked processes that will be more nimble and effective and be ready for the next crisis rather than um, uh, wait for it to happen and then take action. So that's the kind of overview of the report. And then the idea is within each of those shifts, there's a cluster of recommendations that member states and their partners in the private sector and civil society can discuss, unpack, and decide whether to uh, essentially adopt them in the lead up to the summit of the future. Not all the paths will lead to the summit of the future, but that's the kind of organizing moment for this report. Now, when I read the report, I found it very complete. I think the six shifts summarize many of the threads that are kind of loose that make a lot of people say multilateralism is not working. Well, actually, multilateralism is working. It could do so much better. And the report is able to pinpoint some of those, you know, improvements, especially through the recommendations. So if you agree, we would like to single out two aspects of this. The first is how the report suggests that the Security Council may be reformed. And so if you could give us a little bit more detail on what the high-level uh, board recommends in, in, in that area. And the second, maybe we can spend even more, a little bit more time discussing on how on shift one, multilateralism, and what it means more effective and inclusive multilateralism, because this is what our audience will be primarily interested in. So tell us more about how the members of the panel envision the possibility of a reform of the UN Security Council. Yeah, and you, you've picked one of the trickiest issues, actually, in, in, to, to look at in this report. Um, so just to be clear, the, the phrase Security Council reform could mean a lot of different things in different contexts. But the, the main understanding is that the Security Council is not a reflection of geopolitics today. Um, it has a, a fixed permanent set of members with a veto power and 10 other members. And most people, when they say Security Council reform, they mean some form of expansion of the membership of the council to better reflect the geopolitics of today, to more equitably reflect where the Security Council does much of its work, including in, on the continent of Africa, and to hopefully address the shortcomings in the Security Council's decision-making process where we see it unable or unwilling to respond to things like Syria, Yemen, Ukraine. And so there are other areas that could be considered Security Council reform, but that core idea of how could it be expanded is, is the one that was really at the front of this conversation. One of the interesting things that came out of this, and, and one of the interesting things to note, actually, is that the security recommendations fall quite late in the report. That doesn't mean that they're less important, but it does, it does mean that I'd say some of the more ambitious and likely to land recommendations may actually fall outside of the security area and feed into the security area. So on, on the reform process, one of the, the interesting things that happened during the board's deliberations or right after uh, the board was, was announced is that President Biden announced in his speech to the General Assembly that the United States was open to a reform process and an expansion of, and in his words, the permanent and non-permanent members of the council. Now, this is an important statement because for the last 20 years or so, there have been fairly fixed positions on Security Council reform. There, we don't need to go into detail, but there's the push to have an expansion of four members called the G4 position, which is Germany, India, Brazil, and Japan, which is a longstanding push by some members. There's a, another cluster that would see uh, an expansion of non-permanent members, Uniting for Change, uh, for, um, change group, and... Um, there are a whole range of other positions that don't really seem to have changed much over the last 20 years. And so while there was a push by, by the Americans via the Biden statement to reopen that discussion, there wasn't necessarily a lot of other moving pieces. Now, the 
the war of aggression in Ukraine certainly created a, a sense of crisis that the council was unable to act and, and, and a sense that something needed to be done. But I think the challenge for the board from the outset was, what can you say new about Security Council reform, given that really the players that are going to be involved are the P5? And, and the important thing to realize is that any change in the in the constellation or the the membership or especially the expansion of permanent members would need to be ratified by the P5 uh, and not only ratified by the P5 but their governments. So you could imagine that you could have an agreement by President Biden, for example, for an expansion that would need to go to Congress. Same for France. Same for for Russia. And so um, it's a very difficult. Uh, question to say we have a clear recommendation that we know can land given those geopolitics. So what the board decided to do was to offer, first of all, to say that the Security Council is not doing its job. And I think the statement's quite clear in the report, the Security Council is unable to perform its core duties. And then to offer some principles to guide what a reform process would look like. And so there is a proposal for a, a, a charter review conference, which would be the kind of process that would allow for a change in the constellation and membership of the, the council. And then these three uh, principles to guide that discussion. One of the most important ones there, and I think that's a theme throughout the report, is equity and that the membership of the council should more equitably reflect um, the, the global uh dynamics and, and where the council does most of its work. And legitimacy is another key principle um, that, that would need to be involved. And effectiveness is another one. And, and it sounds a little glib, but um, many experts who we spoke to pointed out correctly that adding a bunch of veto-wielding members to the council wouldn't necessarily improve its effectiveness per se. Having more people saying no doesn't increase the likelihood of the council being able to do action. And so I think those principles are important as a starting point for that discussion. And then I think what's important also is they they weren't prescriptive in the sense of saying we should have two more permanent members or five more permanent members or non-permanent members. In fact, they stayed agnostic. What they did do was suggest that whatever the reform of the council's membership is or is not, other actions need to complement that. And so the, the Security Council reform proposal is paired with a proposal for greater clarity on when the General Assembly can take action in the absence of Security Council action. There's some really interesting initiatives there, the Liechtenstein initiative about having council members justify their veto in front of the GA is quite important, I think. And I think Liechtenstein has been one of the most important players in this for the last 20 years. Um, and so there's, there's a statement in the board report also about, about that. And, and I think it's also paired with a, a third proposal, which is that other bodies may need to take up a greater role in addressing non-military threats to security or human security, uh, to use a, a, a term that's in the report as well. And there, one of the most important bodies is the Peace Building Commission. And the Peace Building Commission um, could be expanded to cover a broader range of issues, including climate-driven risks, including digital risks. It could be capacitated with more ability to do investigations like you see the Human Rights Council doing here. And so there's a kind of cluster of recommendations about how to build up and expand the work of the Peace Building Commission, which, to be perfectly frank, is a reflection also of how unlikely it is for council reform to address those core questions about needing to address peace and security risks. So I think it's a kind of cluster of recommendations, starting with that core one of needing to reform the council, but then also saying, you know, other bodies may need to step in a bit more as well. And, and that's that's the kind of trajectory of that set of recommendations. And indeed, there is a, there is a lot of uh, discussion, and especially in academic circles, about the centrality of that issue, the reform of, uh, or the impossibility of the reform of the Security Council, because it links to several things. Well, first of all, on a, on, a, on a face value dimension, it links to the credibility of the institution that we call United Nations Organizations. And we see that every time the Security Council is kind of paralyzed by politicized dynamics, then the, the organization takes a beating in terms of perception and credibility. But it's also central to the way member states who are part of the multilateral setup that we have today envision the future and the possibility of various futures for multilateralism, therefore, with an organization as it is today. Difficult to imagine with an organization that could self-reform 
We don't have history of that, although the UN is the most reformed organization uh, in the history of international organizations, but these reforms don't seem to get to the core. So it would be very interesting to see how perhaps on the path to the summit of the future, this idea of a charter review conference may gain traction or, or not. And so that centrality is, is still there. And when you look at many authors, academic studies, they use the trickiest question of all, the Security Council issue, as, because it's an element that when you move that element, a lot of other moving parts set in motion. And that, that is something that you highlighted. So let's switch to or move on to shift one, multilateralism. How would you summarize the findings and the recommendation of the report on shift one? Yeah, and I actually think shift one may have some of the most transformative aspects in it, even though it's not subject matter specific. So um, the way the report is organized is there are a set of principles that start the report. And these are principles that should guide all of the shifts, and they have to do with making multilateralism less hierarchical, less top-down, more inclusive, um, more future-oriented. And I think that's an important theme also in the common agenda is to kind of uh, reflect the, the needs and rights of future generations. And so there are a set of principles that start this report, and they stand alone. And I think those could actually be useful in themselves. But then shift one really gets into the question of how multilateralism is conducted as a set of institutions and processes, and where the board felt there may be inefficiencies or or inequalities that could be addressed. And so I think the easiest way to understand how that works is just to go through some of the aspects of it. Um, one, of, one of the key kind of sets of those shifts has to do with who's involved in multilateralism. So, uh, for example, um, the role of civil society in, in multilateralism has been largely to date as externalized to the process. It's been seen as member state-driven processes with civil society kind of as an outer circle. And I think we've reached a tipping point where we can't really describe multilateralism in those tiers so much anymore. And the role of civil society, not only in informing this report, but informing the key processes to date, uh, the UN at 75 process was one, um, but also the summit of the future. You see a lot of, uh, a lot of civil society groups organizing very effectively around that. And I think the board wanted to reflect that uh, crucial importance of civil society as well and through a set of recommendations. There are two other areas that I think are really important as well. The board noticed, and this they're not the first to notice, that cities and subnational governments are also playing an extremely important role in delivering for people. This is probably most obvious in the area of, of environmental governance where kind of cities networks have been on the front line of addressing environmental concerns, disaster response, green energy, and things like that. And what the board actually recommended is that there be a process to more formally include cities and subnational governments in multilateral processes themselves. So rather than being seen as subordinate, more directly involved in some processes, not all processes. And the board was, I think, aware that uh, member states are still the unit of measurement of multilateralism, um, but that you could find creative ways to more effectively bring them into the picture, including through seats in certain fora and certain processes. Um, and the second area that's similar to that is uh, an area that's actually already taking place in the, in the current negotiations on the plastic treaty, where large industry is actually being involved and obligated through a multilateral process. And I think the and obligated is the important part. Um, there many experts, when thinking about the role of the private sector in multilateralism, were a little bit wary. You see, you know, the big oil companies, um, and the big um, carbon-based energy companies really putting the brakes on environmental governance in many areas. And there's a risk that by involving the private sector more directly in environmental governance, it would slow it down. But I think there was a recognition that you can't have a just green transition where the private sector is an external party to that process. They need to be brought in and obligated in certain ways. So that's the, the second area was really how do you bring the private sector meaningfully and with, a, with some teeth into multilateralism. And I would say the two major areas where that is identified was environmental governance and then tech, where you see AI development and other technological developments as really needing to be done in, in partnership with the private sector. And then the last... The last thing I think it's worth mentioning on shift one 
is this um, kind of tyranny of the definition of consensus. And so much of the UN is um, driven by consensus-based bodies. Now, you and I just talking to each other have a layperson's understanding of consensus, which is most people most of the time. And if you had a group of 100 people and 65 or so tended to agree in general on something, we would say, okay, you can move forward on consensus. That's not how consensus has been interpreted in some of the most important multilateral bodies today. It has been interpreted to mean if one member state says no loud enough, the whole thing's dead. And what this means is that key processes where 193 out of 194 member states can agree that something needs to be done can be blocked by one member state, which is non-democratic and not equitable. And I think most importantly for the board is not a reflection of this concept of global public goods, this kind of this need to deliver on issues of global concern. I think issues of global concern is the secretary general's term for that. And so what the board has recommended is that a process to identify multilateral institutions and processes that might benefit from a redefinition of consensus to be maybe a supermajority or a double majority or some form of um, consensus that doesn't isn't so easily blocked. Now that will be very difficult in practice, and I think in some cases like this, the board um, realized that some of their recommendations were non-starters in certain fora. I mean, nuclear powers are not going to suddenly agree to have their ability to maintain nuclear weapons contingent on a majority vote. They just won't do it. But I think that push to redefine multilateralism as something that is less beholden to a very small group of powerful states and more uh, a sense of we all need to be um, agreeing on some baseline issues of global concern was the, was one of the key other pushes in that shift. Well, this is very interesting because using your own words, panels seem aware that some of the recommendation could be non-starters. However, the sole process happens on a moving conveyor belt. So there is there is there are two dynamics in place. And one, the conveyor belt is the development of multilateralism and global order in its own evolution. So that is in motion and the discussions are happening and they look static, but to if you zoom out, the whole system is moving towards somewhere else. Some it's natural evolution. And I think that this idea of uh, redefining consensus is it belongs to the field of redefinitions, like redefine domestic interest. We're basically stuck with definitions that date for under years. And we adhere to these collectively in a consensual way. And, um, and we're very careful because we all know what we got. And so what we got now is what we may lose. And that basically still informs the, the name of the between state actors. But when we bring into the mix civil society and private sector, then the whole dynamic tends tends to change. And we have seen it in several in several in several examples. For me, the most telling example is the building and acceptance of Agenda 2030. When you look at that process, it looks like something that we are going to use more in the future. And maybe the summit of the future could combine those skills, those behaviors, those mindsets that we have seen at work, um, although in a in a sort of initial and sometimes prehistoric way uh, during the, the the road to the post-2015 sustainable development model at how it was, it was called like that at that time. So if we could just go a little bit deeper on this issue, notion of involving civil society, which is basically involving the people, and at the juncture of these issues of global concern and people lies the area in which multilateralism becomes every body's business, and it truly is, and we have lost that notion. For example, if you look at article and literature from the 20s of last century, at the time of the League of Nations, you can see that this idea of internationalism was much more pervading, and it was much more of a layman and laywoman issue than it is today. So is the report or the panel saying anything about how people could be involved in processes that have teeth and leverage in the way we do multilateralism as a practice? Mm. Yeah, that question made me think of 
this great book by Tatiana Karianis and Tom Weiss, The Third UN, and this idea that Third UN is not a, a kind of separate tier or outer circle, but there's a kind of permeability. And one of the ways I've actually described our role as a secretariat to the board is to create a permeable layer between people and experts and the multilateral fora for discussions. And I hope that can be replicated. Um, I think one of the ways that you can think of um, bringing a broader group of constituents into multilateralism is a set, is through the types of recommendations that are in this board report that are often called science policy interface. And so, for example, in the environmental area, um, they, the board recommended a science policy action network that would bring in information from a much broader range of sources. You could imagine it from think tanks and scientists. You can imagine it as an IPCC for the planet as well. But um, to create a greater ability for the system to feed off of opinions from outside and rely less on just national sources of data. One of the big problems that I see, at least, is that um, if you have a completely member state dominated system, then all of your information and your sense of where truth is relies on what member states say are happening within their own countries. And we know from history that they don't always tell an accurate picture. Now, obviously, they need to be central to that discussion, but you see um, a push in the environmental area for science policy, you also see a push in the security area for more expert, scientifically driven sense of where security risks are. Uh, one of the reasons I think that was one of the recommendations, there's actually a transparency uh, recommendation in the board report, is that many of the fora that member states have used to share information and build trust around security are in a period of decline. I'm guessing none of the people listening to this podcast know what UNMILEX or UNROCA is, but these are registries of military weapons and usage that are, I would say are used less and relied upon less than in, in earlier years. This, um, the famous START treaty between the U.S. and Russia is now fairly defunct. That was a place where states could share information about military risks. And I think the board understood that we need to build that up more independent, scientifically rigorous um, sources of where security risks would be. So that's another kind of entry point for people. And I, I remember during the beginning of the Syria war, there were people even on Twitter who were verifying type, different types of weapons by just taking photos of them. You could imagine a, a proliferation of sources of data around things like carbon usage or digital space too. Another one of the board's report, uh, recommendations is to have a commission on a just digital transition. And that commission would be another entry point for a broader range of action actors to feed in. So I think almost across all of the shifts from health risks, AI, climate, um, and, and even in the financial area as well, digital, you see a push to create these kind of nodes in the system that can draw a greater range of perspectives in. There are There's the specific set of recommendations about civil society space in the multilateral system, but I actually think these science policy action recommendations may be the most um, likely to result in a broadening of sources of information and hopefully a creation of a more networked and trust-building kind of organization in the UN and less a kind of sense of closed spaces with mahogany tables in them. So a pervasive push throughout all the shifts to have channels or points of entry for civil society in the form of uh, science, but other other forms as well, to contribute. So basically channels to contribute to a process, but no such thing as a house of the people, for example, an organ that will act like a world parliament, for example, nothing like that. So what's interesting is there there was an online consultation and the and where, where the board listened to hundreds of written proposals uh, we convened 21 expert roundtables. We took, uh, I think we met with somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 experts. And so there were a lot of recommendations that were made to the board, and not all of them are included in the report. Many of them are actually on the, on the board's website. There were recommendations in that space that you're referring to. So uh, a UN parliamentary assembly was one of the recommendations um, there's a coalition of civil society groups called the Coalition for the UN We Need that was pushing for that. Um, and there were other recommendations that were similar, a civil society envoy, which has a lot of traction among civil society groups. Now, those those recommendations are not in the, in the board's report, um, but they were considered by the board. And, and, and I do hope that there are other opportunities to consider those more, more deeply. Um, 
I think that in in terms of the UN Parliamentary Assembly idea, which I think was the one you're referring to potentially, um, some of the opinions I heard from experts is that, first of all, it would be quite difficult to create that, especially in, in um, globally, you could imagine that the I don't like global south, global north, but for the purposes of the next two sentences, I'll use it. Global, The global north countries might have more of a capacity to put parliamentary representatives into that, and it might put more strain on global south. So there could actually be an equity issue with that recommendation. I heard from experts. I am not an expert on this, um, on this particular proposal. But I think so, some of what the board had to grapple with was um, good ideas that could be implemented in the lead up to the some of the future, good ideas that might have a different trajectory beyond that, and then ideas that, that might not fit cleanly within those shifts that they were considering. But I, I do think it is worth really emphasizing the breadth of civil society organizations that do support proposals like that, like an envoy and an assembly. Those were two of the most frequently made recommendations, and I do hope that there are opportunities for member states to consider how that might, how that might happen, but it's not in the board's report. There's also a dimension uh, that we should mention here is that when we see civil society pushing for these kind of recommendations and pushing forward their proposals, we see also uh, a faith in the in the system. We see that they don't want to throw out everything with the bathwater, but they do believe that the system can be corrected, adjusted, and evolved to to match what we need to do in the in the next thirty years or so, which appears to be radically different what we've been doing for the past thirty years. And so what I understand from from, from your description of the work of the of the panel is the um, sorry, the advisory board, is that they sort of operated a selection of recommendations. Not all the possible recommendations are in the report. So I wanted to ask you, you had uh, 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 oversight on the whole process. You you follow it, and and you know the report very well, of course. So, what is your personal informed opinion on on the likelihood that some or many or all of these recommendations may give birth to something tangible that we could sort of, yeah, kind of touch and see manifest themselves as a, a you know enhancement that will make multilateralism more effective, as the subtitle of the report says? It's a great question. I wish I had the answer to that. But I will say that we're organizing a pretty good portion of our work over the next 17 months or so to trying to help member states understand and land those proposals. So it's exactly the question that we're confronting right now. Maybe just to take a step back, I think one of the ways of thinking about the summit of the future is first of all you have the you have the our common agenda report that's got 80 or so recommendations that are kind of clustered into these so-called tracks so there's a track on the global digital compact there's a track on outer space there's a track on future generations and there's a track on the high level advisory board now not all of those tracks are equally likely to land at the summit of the future one of the things to notice is the Secretary General is writing policy briefs on some of these tracks, and they have, some of them have already come out. For example, the emergency platform, there's already a policy brief out, and the idea is, is that will help shepherd that recommendation into some form of approval or implementation in the lead-up to the summit of the future. Um, other tracks, I think, are less likely to develop strictly within a, a lead-up to the summit of the future, but could be... Um, acknowledged or recognized or accelerated at the summit of the future. So, for example, many of the pushes to reform the international financial architecture um, to make it more responsive to climate adaptation needs are already were already taking place before the, the announcement of the summit of the future. So the Bridgetown Initiative, uh, the COP meetings and, and, and the, the spring meetings of the bank and things like that. Um, but there's a, a way where the summit of the future is trying to crystallize and maybe accelerate some of the progress there. Other tracks, I think, like the high-level advisory board um, report, are much more directly designed to try to land at the summit of the future um, because it was something the SG really commissioned as an input to the summit of the future, and the, and the co-facilitators of the summit of the future have asked specifically for discussions on the board report. So that <clears throat> that's a kind of long way of saying I don't know which of the recommendations will land. If I had to guess... Um, as to which ones are likely to 
have some sort of tangible output. I think there's a very strong desire amongst member states, um, and, and you saw this last July, actually, when there were discussions on the common agenda, to have some progress on this global digital compact. I think that you could see a, a, a cross-cutting positive reaction to this idea that Tech Envoy has done a lot of work to cultivate a clear track, a clear process. And so I think in the digital space, whether or not it's the full compact, whether or not it's the exactly what's laid out in the policy brief that's coming out, but I do think there will be some sort of tangible output at the summit of the future on digital space. Um, I think it would be very unlikely for there to be an announcement of a a charter conference that would reform the Security Council at the summit of the future. But I could imagine that some of those other recommendations around um, a greater role for the Peace Building Commission, around maybe more initiatives on climate security, could land somewhere in the summit of the future. Um, one of the biggest questions that, that I have is, what does the right to a clean, healthy, sustainable environment mean? Which was, by the way, first acknowledged here in Geneva, cultivated in this space, and then recognized in New York, can that moment be used to elevate the environment in the multilateral system between now and the summit of the future? And the board's report has some very specific recommendations on what it means to elevate the environment and make it less of a subordinate issue within the UN system to capacitate uh, the UN environmental program with a greater sense of with a greater set of capacities like like the Human Rights Council has, by the way, investigators, uh, a much broader set of reporting capacities, maybe even the links between the environmental sharp part of the shop and international financial institutions. There's a whole range of very interesting proposals on the environment. Some of those, I think, probably could land at the summit of the future in one way or another. Um, others, decarbonization package, are very unlikely to be done in that particular process, but it could, what I think the board's idea was, you plant the seed and you hope that it, it happens elsewhere and then is kind of locked in at the summit of the future. And one of the ways I think about this overall process is the board did kind of tap into a zeitgeist moment. And, and, and what we hope is things like the Bridgetown Initiative are a tipping point in the global system where you can no longer talk about the IFIs, you can no longer talk about the environment without the word equity in it. You can no longer talk about how we're going to do climate adaptation without the breakthrough on loss and damage and things like that. And so part of, I think, what the board is doing is trying to lock in those tipping points so that you can't move back from them and you can only accelerate forward from them. In some areas, I think it, it, it could be quite successful. Um, and in others, I don't know. I think a lot of work will have to be done to build trust amongst member states. And just one final sentence, I think one of the keys to making the summit of the future a success is to have a successful SDG summit this year. Many members, especially in the G77 and partners, have pointed out that we've blasted many, many recommendations out through the high-level advisory board, through the common agenda, and you have this incredibly important inflection moment, September 19th and 20th of this year, with the SDG summit. That really is the focal point of many of our international commitments. And some member states have complained that the, the whole summit of the future stuff could distract from that. The more that we can show that the various tracks and initiatives are accelerating progress on the SDGs, and that's a key theme of the high-level advisory board, the better I think the chances of success at the summit of the future will be. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you for all these comments because they also highlight how in some areas like digital compact, environmental protection, there are more planets that have completed their alignment moves. And, and that's something that always happens in in big dynamics in, in international relations. You have this process of alignment. But what what that doesn't detract from the importance of other areas singled out by the by the report, because in those the planets will do their work anyways. And um, it's not so much the issues are late or early. It's actually member states are late or early on things. Most of the time, very late. And I, I don't remember any being early on any core thing. So these these two areas are prototypes of alignment of planets. Then, of course, other areas may align later on. But the time factor plays a game in our time now that has not played so sharply and, and harshly in the past. And you can see this. 
And that is also a mechanism for recapturing will from the civil society and individuals to intervene. And you notice that in the SDG dynamic, how it matters to people. There are some of the goals that are indispensable for people to continue to believe in progress of the humankind. And then they participate, they come into it. So it's all uh, contrast in motion, as Dr. Lavelle uh, Professor Lavelle of the United States, who was one of our guests, said brilliantly, she said, basically, the best way to define multilateralism is, is a constant contrast in motion. And I think it's very, that idea appeals to me uh, uh, a lot. So thank you for all this. But it, this is also a good, good spot to start wrapping up our episode. But before we do so, maybe, you know, what is that really impressed you in the report that you think it's, you know, portable and memorable that you could pass on to the audience. Like, hey, the, these are the two, three things you should remember about this report. Yeah, it's a good question. And one of the discussions we had within the board was this risk of dust gathering. And um, there's always a risk when you're writing a report that it will capture a particular moment, but in retrospect will be seen as in one way or another outdated or not relevant. There's actually a 2006 report by High-Level Task Force on Global Public Goods that um, tried to do the same thing and I think is probably sitting on a shelf, uh, frankly, gathering dust. And I think there was a, a, a worry from the board or a concern not to do that again. And so what you often see the board's recommendations doing is recommending a process that will allow convergence of approach principles, um, a convergence of actors, rather than a specific institution that will address something. This is most notable in AI. And, and AI is such a fast-moving um, area that it would be difficult to say there's an institutional solution to the problem and the risks and the existential risks of transformative AI. And so what struck me was often people like Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's kind of probably the best-known uh, expert on network theory, pointing out in many places like AI, like um, biological risks as well, like climate change, that you cannot have a fixed institutional solution. What you need is a set of principles and a set of goals that will guide progress towards. And so for me, um, looking at the very high level of ambition on the environmental targets that are offered, and I don't think they're high enough, to be honest, but I think they reflect a certain real politique. Um, and then a set of processes that aren't necessarily going to institutionalize our, our approach to those goals, but will try to converge actors around an approach to those goals. And I think one of the most influential writers in this space, and, and uh, she was consulted in the Common Agenda process, is Mariana Matsukato, who talks about kind of goal-oriented processes. So what, struck, what strikes me about this is what I hope it does is five years from now, we can look back on this report and say it gave a sense of where we needed a common direction. It gave some, it gave some targets, total end of the fossil fuel era, for example, net biodiversity gains, net um, pollution going down over time, which is very ambitious. And rather than say, we need a specific house for that, it said, here are the actors that need to be involved and here's some creative ways of involving them. And so that, that, that struck me, and I do want to circle back to this idea of um, decision-making in the UN. I mean, I've been working in the UN since 2007, and decision-making is not only slow and unfair, and um, it's just highly inefficient. And I think that first set of shifts, if implemented, if it plants a seed of a more dynamic um, more inclusive, but also less paralyzing approach to decision-making. That could be more transformative, really, than almost any of the other recommendations. Very difficult to do. But I do think there is an openness, and I do think that the, the combination of an environmental catastrophe, the, the nuclear clock being so much closer to midnight with Ukraine, this sense, really, the, the hypocrisy of having a P5 member presiding over the Security Council while it's also um, undergoing an act of aggression against another member state. These, these are not necessarily breaking points, but they offer a sense of crisis um, that I hope goes back to the Greek definition of crisis, which is really the need for a decision to be made. Um, and I'm not sure if those decisions will all happen at the summit of the future, but I hope that the report at least captures some of the types of decision-making processes that could 
break us through, to use the, the term from the board's report. Before we conclude today, uh, Adam, we're going to put the links to the report, of course, in the notes to this episode, but uh, this is also the right moment for you to to share with the audience any place where they can get to know more about the university or the, the, the policy center or other publications or any, any pointers. I mean, obviously, the website of the board has all the links that you'll need. Um, I do think that there are other processes that are worth following if you're interested. Um, so Global Digital Compact is, is one. Um, but we also partnered with a lot of experts that are doing really interesting work in this space. And so in the AI space in particular, there's actually a Geneva-based group called the Simon Institute that's doing really interesting thinking about um, transformative AI. And so uh, we tried to make it a very linkable report that, that you can follow easily. One of the big questions we, we're going to be looking at um, in different parts of the world, um, and I'll start with Geneva, is we'll say, what is Geneva's contribution to a breakthrough? And we're going to do a series of events in Geneva that focus on that. We've actually got one on Friday that is really focused on the trade and finance aspects of the report. And you've got the WTO here. You've got UNCTAD. You've got WIPO. You've got this great cluster of actors that are actually going to be necessary for it to break through. We'll do another one in Nairobi that will ask kind of what, what, are the, what is the contribution of the kind of environmental infrastructure to that. But I think we can have – we're going to try and do – I think the term is a dog and pony show, but we're going to try and do a global rollout that also asks, what's the role of regions in delivering this breakthrough? So you could imagine one in Rio where you'd say, you know, we have a cluster of recommendations around deforestation, biodiversity, where Brazil is probably one of the most important single countries, but also regions for that. How could a set of actors deliver on that? We did another one with small island developing states. What is their role in delivering that? And I think the idea between now and the summit of the future is to give a sense of stake and ownership that goes beyond just a piece of paper, but to say, if you want this ambitious goal to be met, there's actually a specific role you can play. What I really am enthusiastic about is I think that in particular, small island developing states, smaller nations are realizing that there's a momentum around some of these ideas that they can actively participate in. And there are pressure points. Um, I mean, Mia Motley, uh, her approach on, on the Bridgetown initiative is something that I think could be transformative for the multilateral system coming out of a country that very few would have anticipated could have had such a, an important impact. And I think that's, that's the big upside of what I think of as a complex global ecosystem is you don't always have top-down approaches that will work. Some of them will require, like green energy transition will require U.S., China, India to make certain decisions. Other ones, so you might actually find that change happens in unusual places. And the more, the more open we are to kind of networked thinking about multilateralism, the more we can take advantage of those moments, I hope. Adam Day, head of the Geneva office of the United Nations University Center for Policy Research here in Geneva. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thanks. It was great to be here.